few years ago, AMC made a popular TV show called Breaking Bad. I wonder, has anyone seen that in here? Uh, all right, a few of you have. Uh, when I, you know, when I was thinking about this illustration, I thought, I'll text Pastor Benu and see, you know, have a lot of people in the church seen this show? And he suggested that I should, if I really wanted to use the illustration, I should come dressed in character uh, as Walter White. I, and I, I consider that for a few minutes, but the, you know, as I thought about it, I realized Benu looks so much like Walter White <laughs> that I, you know, if you really want an illustration, you could just look over here at Pastor Benu. You could, you know, imagine him as a 50-year-old white guy, and uh, and that's uh, that's that's pretty much it. So <clears throat> anyway, uh, if if you if you haven't seen it or if you're watching it, there's going to be a minor spoiler. Uh, so you might want to cover your ears, okay? It's not going to be a big one, but a minor one. <coughs> Excuse me. Breaking Bad is a show about a 50-year-old, uh, straight-laced, high school chemistry teacher who decides to become a drug dealer. He decides to break bad. And one of the things I really loved about the show was how realistic it was. And what I mean is... He tries really hard to separate his new bad life from his normal, regular family life. But even though he tries so hard to do this, it's impossible. And here's the spoiler. But by the end of the show, uh, his, his, all of his bad actions spill over into his family life, and it ends up ruining his family. Now, of course, it's not a happy story, but I liked how realistic it was. Um, <clears throat> Colossians is certainly not about breaking bad, okay? Um, and it's not really about breaking good either. It's about, we could say, it's about breaking Christian. It's about breaking Christian. It's a letter written to a group of people that Paul says were once hostile to God in their sins. But they heard the good news that Jesus Christ had died for their sins and been raised from the dead, that they may have life. And they decided, I'm going to break Christian. They trusted in Christ. They received him as the Lord of their lives. And, and in this letter, what Paul is mainly calling these, these new Christians to do is to continue as they began. To hold on to Christ as the Lord of their life. This whole letter, in a way, could be summarized in chapter 2, verse 6, which says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul emphasizes that what makes someone a Christian is not, is not <clears throat> that they've lived a good life, or that they've had a certain religious experience, or that they do certain religious ceremonies, or specifically thinking about our passage today, that they have a good family. What makes someone a Christian is that they believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Lord of their life. But if Christ is the Lord of your life, if you decide to break Christian, it's going to spill over into your family life. To accept Christ as Lord of your life is to accept Christ as Lord of every part of your life. <clears throat> and really, it's often in our homes, in our families, 
that we can see whether or not Christ really is Lord of our lives. Because this is where the rubber meets the road, right? Colossians is, is an amazing letter to me because it's so theological and yet it's so practical. So just a few verses earlier, Paul can call us to ponder the fact that, that Christ is actually in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And then in this text, he can tell us how to practically live our lives. <clears throat> this passage today is about how to live as a Christian family. It's not about how to become a Christian family. It's about how being a Christian should spill over into your, into your family life. <clears throat> and considering the demographic of our church, I, I can't think of a more timely message. Right? Many of us in here are married, many of us have children, and many of us are children in this church, <laughs> right? What Paul's going to do in these verses is he's going to address us head on in our relationships between husbands and wives and between children and parents. But before we get into that, I want to ask an important question, and that is, what does this passage have to say to you if you're single today? What does this passage have to say to you if you're single? Why should you listen to this message? Why should you take it to heart? Here are a few reasons. First, this passage should teach you how to pray for others in the church. You know, it's hard to know what to pray for sometimes, right? Have you ever started praying and you kind of run out of words? What, what should I pray for? Well, one thing you can pray for is that God would, would help your fellow believers, brothers and sisters in this church, those especially who are married or those who have children, those who are children, to live in this way, uh, to please God in this way. So this passage can teach you how to pray for others. Second, this passage can prepare you for marriage and children, if God has that in your future. <clears throat> now, maybe you, maybe you want to be married, and maybe you don't want to be married, and really, that's okay either way as a Christian. You can be a Christian and pursue marriage. You can be a Christian and pursue singleness as long as you live a celibate life. But even if you're not married right now, you might be married one day, and it might surprise you. Colleen and I were married when we were 34. Especially for her, that was quite a surprise. <clears throat> this passage will prepare you to live in Christian marriage if that's what God has for you. Finally, one more reason to listen if you're single. This passage, this passage should really remind you of the freedom that you have to serve Christ if you're single. I think sometimes we ignore this in the church, but Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 7 that he thinks it's better to be single as a Christian than to be married. Now, it's not because singles are more spiritual than, than married people, as if they're married to the Lord or something. In fact, I think Paul explicitly pushes back against that in 1 Corinthians 7. <clears throat> it's because singles have more time, and they have less obligations. If you're single, you're free 
from all the obligations <clears throat> that marriage and children bring into your life. Now, I know some of you might say, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> but seriously, one thing I think you should consider in this passage, one thing this passage should make you think is, wow, I don't have to worry about all that, right? I can focus on more important things. <clears throat> it should make you, it should help you realize the freedom you have in Christ. I, I think in the church, especially in the Protestant and Evangelical church, we, we need to have a greater vision of singleness. And actually a book I would recommend along these lines is a book called Redeeming Singleness by Barry Danielak. Ex excellent book on this topic. Three reasons you should listen if you're single. Let's get into the passage. All right, there are, it's a pretty simple passage. There are four commands in this passage, and these four commands will be the four points of my sermon today. And one thing I want to note at the beginning, though, is that these four commands in verses 18 through 21 actually explain verse 17. I'm going to read verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does it mean to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? What does it mean to live out the fact that he is the Lord of your life? Paul says, this is what it means. First, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 18. This verse is, of course, the most controversial verse uh, in this passage. In fact, when, when Pastor Jay asked me to preach... I just said yes without asking what the text was. And then he told me what the text was. And I started reading, wives, submit to your husbands. And I said, oh, great. <laughs> right? I get to preach this. <clears throat> so because, because this command can sound very culture, uh, controversial to us and maybe, maybe even oppressive uh, to some of you uh, because of our culture, I want to start with a few observations that will help us think about this command a little more clearly. First, I want us to notice that Paul is not saying that women in general must submit to men. Right? He's not saying that women in general must submit to men. So this is, it's not a broad statement about the status of men and women in the church or in the world. In fact, when Paul reflects on the status of men and women in the church, he says this, I'm quoting from Galatians 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So according to Paul, men and women are equals in Christ. We have the same access to God, or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter, we are co-heirs of the grace of God. So Paul, as I understand him, did not think that men were superior to women. He does not say here that every woman must submit to every man. This command is not a statement about men and women in the workplace. 
It's not even a statement about men and women in the church. It's a statement specifically about Christian marriage. That's my first point. Second, <clears throat> the three relationships that Paul talks about here. Did you notice that? Wives and husbands, children and parents, and then next week we'll see slaves and masters. These three relationships are similar and yet different. They're similar and yet different. How are they similar? They're, they're similar in that each is a relationship of authority in some way, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. That's how they're similar. But they're also very different. Even in this passage, we see that. Did you notice that Paul commands wives to submit to their husbands, but children to obey their parents. So he even uses a different verb, I think recognizing that there's something different in those two relationships. Um, <clears throat> one further thing I would say is that Paul, Paul never says, Paul never says, that God created slavery. He never says, in fact, the Bible as a whole never says God created slavery. But Paul several times says God created marriage. So there's something different between marriage and between slavery in the first century world. So even though these three relationships are similar, uh, they're different, right? There's not an exact analogy. So the relationship between husbands and wives, is different than the relationship between children and parents, right? And the relationship between husbands and wives and children and parents are, are very different than the relationship between slaves and masters. So even though they're similar, they're also different. That's my second point. Third point, and then we'll actually get into the, into the passage, okay? Third, third observation here. Paul is not merely making a statement about traditional values in these verses. He's not making a statement about traditional values in these verses. It has been argued that Paul here is simply reflecting the patriarchal views of his day, where men had all the power in society and in the household. There's actually some truth in this, I think. Commentators often observe parallels between Paul's passage here and between philosophers in the ancient world who reflect on husbands and wives and children and parents and slaves and masters because the household is the basic unit of society. I mean, the very fact that Paul addresses slaves and masters shows he's, he's directly addressing his culture. But Paul is not making a statement of traditional values in Colossians 3. In fact, I would say it's the exact opposite. Paul's arguing this is how you can live the new life in Christ, right? Think about the context. In the beginning of chapter 3, Paul says, you've been raised with Christ to live a new life. And then he begins telling us how not to live as we used to, put to death your sins, and how to live a new life, put on a new wardrobe, as we heard last week. These commandments are in that context. This is part of the new wardrobe of Christian living. This, this is how we can show as Christians 
that Christ is the Lord of our life. Notice, notice that Paul even gives a reason why wives should submit to their husbands. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord or in, in Jesus. This phrase, in the Lord, is almost Paul's way of saying Christian, right? What Paul's telling us is, this is the kind of life that is appropriate for a woman who accepts Christ as the Lord of her life. So what, what Paul is talking about and what we're talking about today is not traditional values, whether of Paul's culture or of our culture. It's not traditional values. We're talking about what the new Christian life should look like. That's a lot of caveats, okay? Let's actually get into what the text says. <clears throat> Paul says, married women can show that Jesus is the Lord of their lives by submitting to their own husbands. What does this mean? What does it mean to submit to your husbands? Essentially, I think it means willingly placing yourselves under your husband's authority. Willingly placing yourselves under your husband's authority. In Ephesians, a letter probably sent at the same time as Colossians, Paul gives the exact same command, and he explains a little further there that God designed marriage as a shadow of the relationship between Christ and the church. In the relationship between Christ and the church, Christ is our leader, and, and we follow and submit to him. In fact, I would argue at the, at the very heart of the gospel is the fact that we submit ourselves to God as our creator and redeemer. We stop thinking we're in charge, and we recognize that God's in charge. And as a temporary small shadow of that greater reality, Paul says Christian wives are to follow their husband's leadership. They are to place themselves under his authority. Now, I think this will look very different in different relationships, just as work authority structures look very different depending on the people who are involved on both sides. But I think it should always involve a posture of placing yourselves under your husband's authority. So let me ask a few questions to wives here. Do you, do you willingly follow your husband? When your husband wants to lead your family in ways that you disagree, do you harden against him? Or are you willing to talk things through with him? When your husband is failing to lead your family well, do you, is, your, is your reaction to take charge? Or do you encourage him to take charge? Now, I imagine that for, there are many different reactions to this in here, right? For some of you, this may seem like a very simple thing, right? I imagine for others of you, this may sound like a very difficult command. Because we husbands are often not easy to follow. Even the best of us fall far short of Christ. But here's my encouragement to you, if you're a Christian wife in here. When your husband fails you, and he will, remember 
that Christ will never fail you. When your husband fails you, remember that Christ will never fail you. You can follow Christ all the way to the end. And part of following Christ, Paul says, is that if you're a wife, submit to your husbands. Now, I'm sure this verse has been abused by men in the church. So let me give you a hint if you're a husband in here, okay? Never quote this verse to your wife, okay? <laughs> Never quote this verse to your wife. Why? Because that would violate what Paul calls you to, right? And that's the next verse, and let's look at that. It's the second point of my sermon today. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. One difficulty with this command, I think, is that it sounds almost too obvious to us. If the command for wives to submit to their husbands sounds perhaps wrong or even oppressive, the command for husbands to love their wives sounds so right and so obvious that I don't think we actually comprehend what Paul is calling us to. I can tend to think, here's me, I can tend to think that I have fulfilled this command simply because I'm getting along with my wife, right? If you asked me, do you love your wife? I'd say, of course I love my wife, right? Um, what I mean by that is, I like my wife, right? Uh, I, <laughs> I, I have feelings for my wife, right? Um, but see, Paul is not primarily talking about our feelings as husbands here, although it certainly love involves feelings. I think Paul is talking about our actions here. What does love look like? What does the love of a husband for a wife look like? Again, I think we're helped if we consider the parallel statement in Ephesians 5. There Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Remember, God designed marriage as a, as a temporary shadow of the relationship between Christ and the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave up everything for us, right? He, he gave up his home to come and pursue us. He, he gave up his time to teach us and to share with us what he was thinking. He gave up his comfort to bear with our weaknesses. He gave up his sleep to pray for us. He gave up his reputation to clear our reputation. And, of course, most importantly, he gave up his life to save us from our sins. You see, husbands, you are not fulfilling this command simply because you have strong feelings for your wife or because you're getting along with your wife. That's a great thing. But that's not necessarily fulfilling this command. Here's what I think Paul is calling you to if you're a Christian and a husband here. Paul is calling you to give yourself up for your wife. I'll say it again. Paul is calling us to give ourselves up for our wives. In one sense, you can never completely fulfill this command until you're dead, right? Because there's always more to give. So here are some, here are some practical examples, okay? You may need to give up your enjoyment of watching that game or that movie that you want to watch in order to watch a chick flick, 
right? Now, that's not everyone, right? Uh, but that's some people. It certainly is, is my family, okay? Um, <clears throat> here, here's another one. You may need to give up your ambition at work in order to get home for dinner. Or another, you may need to give up the depth of your relationships with your friends or even your parents and siblings in order to pursue a deeper relationship with your wife. Or another, you, you may need to give up your time in order to just listen to your wife. Or, or you may need to give up your pride in order to really listen to your wife. Let me address another situation. What, what if you're not getting along with your wife? What if the relationship is difficult? Maybe you just don't feel in love anymore. Here, I think the example of Christ is even more powerful, isn't it? Because Christ came to us when we wanted nothing to do with him. He pursued us when we were not lovely. He died for us, Paul says, when we were his enemies. So what better way to follow Christ than to give yourself to your wife when she doesn't deserve it? Notice that Paul also gives a negative command here that I think is the flip side of love. Did you see it in verse 19? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. More literally, this could be translated, do not become bitter toward them. I, I think Paul's point here is that we as husbands must avoid becoming angry or becoming bitter with our, with our wives. Anger is really the, the opposite of love. And there are many reasons we could become angry in marriage. Because we're sinners as husbands and our wives are sinners as well. <clears throat> Both our sin and our wives' sin is working against our love. We could, be, we could be angry, and I've been angry unjustly against my wife because she's ruined my plans or something. Um, or we could have actually even have just, be justified in our anger against our wives. And yet Paul says we can never allow our anger or bitterness to simmer in our hearts against our wives. Of course, the expression of anger is harshness, and that's why I think the ESV translates this, do not be harsh with your wife. This is the very opposite of what God is calling Christian husbands to do. So husbands, don't allow anger and bitterness to take hold of your life. Love your wives. Give yourselves up for them. Two commands down, two to go. Okay, the third commandment in this in this passage is actually to kids. So, if you're a kid in here, listen up. This is one of the only times that the message is just to you guys. All right, I think this is actually pretty cool because it shows that God cares so much about you guys, about kids, that He addresses you specifically in the Bible. So let's see what He says. Read along with me in verse twenty. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So if you're a kid, what does God call you to? 
he calls you to obey your mom and your dad. And notice what he says. Does he say, does he say obey in some things? No, right? He says obey in everything. Obey in everything. So that means when your mom and dad say go to bed, what should you do? You should go to bed, right? When they say be quiet or sit down, what should you do? You should obey. When they say, no, you can't do that, you shouldn't do it. And when they say, would you please do this, you should do it. Paul calls children to obey their parents in everything. And notice he gives you a reason. He doesn't just say, just do it. right? He gives you a reason. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Or a little more literally, this is pleasing in the Lord, in Jesus. That is, if you, if you are a Christian, if you are in the Lord, this is the way that you as a kid can please God. Now, now I want you kids in here to listen really closely right now, okay? Um, and listen to me really closely here. I, I want you to know you can't become a Christian by obeying your parents, okay? You can't become a Christian by obeying your parents because none of you have obeyed your parents in everything, right? You know that, we know that, we might as well just get that on the table, okay? <laughs> none of you have obeyed your parents in everything. You've all sinned against your parents, and you've all sinned against God. So, so God is not asking you kids to obey your parents in order to become a Christian. There's only one way to become a Christian, and that <clears throat> is by believing in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But once you believe in Jesus, once you are a Christian, once you are in the Lord, Paul says one of the main ways that you as a kid who's a Christian can show you're a Christian is to obey your parents in everything. But Paul doesn't just address children here, right? He also addresses parents in the final command. Specifically, he addresses fathers. I think this, this final command applies to both fathers and children. Uh, or excuse me. Uh, it applies to both fathers and mothers. But I think he addresses fathers as kind of the primary um, authority uh, over their kids in the household. And he says, he says in verse 21, Fathers, do not provoke your children. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Notice how this is the counterpoint to the call for children to be obedient. Paul's assuming there's an authority structure in the home. And he's assuming that fathers should lead their children with authority, right? So we shouldn't just be buddies to our children. We should lead our children. In the parallel passage in Ephesians, he says that, that fathers should bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there should be a leading, there should be authority, but authority can be abused, can it? And so Paul, I think, is warning against a particular kind of abuse of authority here, namely provoking your children, provoking your children. What I think he means is speaking in a way that would arouse in your children a reaction especially a reaction of anger. Ephesians makes this a little more clear when it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. 
How can we provoke our children? I think the most obvious way to provoke our children is by yelling at them, right? I, I imagine, I don't have kids, I imagine it can be very tempting to yell at your children, especially when they don't obey. Some of us are not the type to yell. We might never yell at our kids, but we might speak down to our children, or we might be sarcastic with our children, right? provoking them to anger. Or sometimes provoking, I think, can be more of a long-term approach to our children. Maybe we, we nag our children, or we continually point out the faults in our children. What does this do in the hearts of a kid? It causes anger and resentment to, to rise up in their hearts. It, it provokes them. And Paul once again gives us a reason why we should not do this. At the end of verse 21, he says, Do not provoke your children, fathers, lest they become discouraged or disheartened. You see, when we provoke our children, we usually do it because we want them to change in some way, right? We want them to obey us or maybe work harder in their schoolwork. But when we provoke our children with our words, we dishearten them. We cause them to lose any motivation to change. We actually lead them in the opposite direction that we want them to go. Now, I don't have children, but I do have, I have a student once that I was becoming close with, and we would have lunch together uh, every other week, and he was going through some major life transitions, and I was trying to help disciple him through some of these things. One thing I was trying to encourage him to do, uh, something students do a lot, right, is I was encouraging him to stop bouncing around to a different church every Sunday, but to actually join a church and, and get to know people and let them get to know him. And, and one day at lunch he told me that he, uh, that he had decided to stop going to church. He was just going to take a break for a while. I knew this was a bad decision, okay? Um, Hebrews says, don't forsake gathering together with other believers. And so I told him it was a bad decision. But he was not convinced, or at least he didn't want to listen to me. So I decided to press him on it more. Uh, see, I wanted to convince him that he was going in the wrong direction. Unfortunately, though, this provoked in him such a negative reaction that it, it literally destroyed our, our friendship. And it really didn't help him. It, it pushed him in the opposite direction that I wanted him to go. I mean, to this day, I wonder if, the, if he's living as a Christian. Now, he responded in a very immature way, right? Um, but he's a kid, right? I mean, he's an older kid, but he's still a kid. What, what, how do I expect him to respond? In a totally mature way? No, right? I should never have provoked him. You know, this was actually, it was a really difficult situation for me. Right? I mean, I build this friendship, and then all of a sudden, he completely cut me off. And I, I can remember thinking to myself, wow, thank God he's not my son, right? Or, and thank God I learned this lesson before I have children. I, I couldn't even imagine uh, if this was my child. I couldn't imagine how difficult that would be. Fathers, Paul says, don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. In conclusion, one danger, I think, of preaching a message entitled How to Live as a Christian Family 
is that it can give the impression that Christianity is all about having a good family, especially because this message is so pervasive in our culture. Christians talk about having family values, right? We focus on the family. We call Christian radio or movies family programming. I want you to understand today, especially if you're not a Christian, that Christianity is not about having a perfect family. Many of us here at Seven Mile Road could tell you stories about how our families do not live up to the ideal. Some of us come from broken homes. Some of us are still healing from divorces. Some of us are estranged from our parents or our children. Christianity is not about having a perfect family. It's about the good news that Jesus Christ has entered into our broken world and our broken lives to save us from our sin by his death and resurrection. Christians are those who have embraced Jesus as the Lord of their lives. And we want to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We want his lordship to spill over into our families. And here, Paul tells us how to do it. Wives, submit to your husbands. Willingly place yourselves under your husband's authority. Husbands, love your wives. Give yourself up for them. Children, obey your parents in everything. Fathers, don't provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. May God help us by his spirit to live such new lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us so clearly. I pray that you would give us hearts that listen and by your spirit that you would change our lives to look more like Christ. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.